If I asked you for your definition of success, what would you say? For me, it's simple. Success is unique to each and every one of us. Hello, I'm Alice Olins, founder of The Step Up Club. Welcome to my podcast, The Success Revolution, which is changing the way that we talk and think about success. Having worked with one too many women who's had her confidence and her identity diminished as a result of working towards an antiquated definition of success, you know it, money, power, status. The mission of this podcast is simple, to get every single one of you feeling successful, whatever that success looks like to you. As you know, instead of having a sponsor, the Success Revolution gives that airtime to the charity of choice of this week's guest. This week, Elizabeth has chosen Refuge, a vital charity that is committed to a world where domestic violence and violence against women and girls is not tolerated and where women and children can live safely. To find out more, visit refuge.org.uk. Elizabeth Day is a vital modern voice across journalism and fiction. She is a regular contributor to publications including The Telegraph, The Times, The Guardian, New York Magazine, Vogue, Grazia and Elle, and is also a contributing editor for Harper's Bazaar and a columnist for You Magazine. Elizabeth writes on subjects including film, feminism, politics, love, life and womanhood. She epitomises what it means to be a multifaceted woman today. A woman who knows how to look hot in a little black dress. Your book launch outfit really was sublime. (laughs) And will speak just as eloquently about anti-aging cream as she will about popular culture. As well as journalism, Elizabeth tells stories by way of her four critically acclaimed novels. Scissor Paper Stone, Home Fires, Paradise City and her smash hit The Party, which I read recently and then recommended literally to anyone who would listen, including my husband who loved it. If you haven't read it and you like suspense, complex relationships and champagne, then this is the book for you. Last year, Day started experimenting with a new medium to speak to her audience, podcasting and it proved to be a pivotal move. How to Fail with Elizabeth Day is a killer podcast that gives well-known guests the space to explore their failures and the impact that these have had on themselves and their lives. It sounds decidedly un-British and fear-inducing, and yet her podcast is probably one of the most honest, engaging and uplifting around. Entirely deservedly so, How to Fail has just been nominated for a British Podcast Award. And as if that wasn't impressive enough or productive enough, Elizabeth's How to Fail book, a memoir slash life guide, was published in March and is currently sitting very happily at number five in the Sunday Times bestsellers chart. Elizabeth, I am genuinely beyond thrilled to have you on the Success Revolution. I am also a journalist by trade and therefore feel very passionately about women who use their words to try and make a difference in the world. So welcome. Thank you so much. And what a beautiful introduction. You know, when someone has clearly connected with everything that you try to do, I mean, it happens so rarely and it was so lovely to hear all of that. Thank you. it's true. And I was thinking this morning that, I mean, I wasn't nervous actually before this podcast because I really enjoy doing my podcast, but I think I am more in awe of kind of intellect than I am of beauty. Not to say that you aren't beautiful, but you know, when you know someone's so interesting. mind, there's something really exciting about it. And I really feel that through your work and your podcasting and everything that you do, I just love to listen to what you do or read what you write. God, thank you so, so much. Anyway, I'm going to stop going on about I how hope I'm not a you massive are. disappointment. Really you <laughs> let down now. Let's start with the biggie, which is success. We had a bit of a chat about success when you arrived. 
I'm going to just ask you the big question. What is your definition of success today and how have you got here? My definition of success, as I think with many people and many women specifically, has changed a lot. So my definition of success today is knowing myself. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is because I think for a long time, I made a lot of decisions not knowing myself very well, trying to please other people and trying to please superimpose social conditions that actually weren't really driven by me and how I wanted to live my life. And it's been a revelation for me the last couple of years because I really have had to strip back the things that I thought were going to be certain that proved to be uncertain and really be very honest with myself about my own weaknesses and about what I want and to care less about people's opinions. And that's a very hard thing to do, particularly if you're a woman. So now my feeling of success comes from a degree of contentment that I have because I do feel I'm being true to myself in everything that I do. And the success of the How to Fail podcast, I think, came about because of that, because it was such an instinctive thing. And I really didn't know whether other people would get it or download it or listen to it. And interestingly, although I've always cared about every single thing I've done about how it's received, and I did care with the podcast, but not to the same extent, because when I did the first season, it existed. I recorded the whole thing first before I sent it out into the world. And it existed in exactly the format I wanted it to exist. I drew my own logo, as you can probably tell if you've ever seen it. Um, I had to really work my friends and contacts to get them to agree to be interviewees. And I did the interviews how I wanted them to be. And I didn't have to write it up to anyone else's word count or anyone else's editorial behests. I licensed some music online. And it really was a personal passion project. And therefore, because it existed in exactly the way that I wanted it to, I found a great deal of success and joy from having done the task. And when I put it out into the world, I genuinely didn't mind. I mean, I wanted people to listen to it, but I honestly thought it was going to be, if I was really lucky, hundreds with the first episode. And I remember doing a sponsorship document to try and get sponsorship for that first season. And not having a clue about numbers and just saying, oh, well, we'll probably maybe get to 10,000 by the end of the season. And I would, that was sky high in my head. I was basically just pulling it out of the ether. And now it's had a million downloads. Yeah, it is amazing. But that to me ties into the success because what I realized was that in being true to myself and knowing myself, I actually connected with a vast number of people and I think that sometimes the things that you feel are very personal can be the most universal. I think it's hard to get to that point, though. Mm. Like I would say, and I totally know how you feel. I mean, I think being a journalist or a writer or any type of broadcaster is hugely exposing. Yeah. And having an editor there, knowing you have to file to a certain time, to a certain shape, size, you know, to fit into what they want is not an easy Especially, it's something so personal, but it's then for somebody else in a way, an editor. And it's a push and a pull that you have to experience to understand how it feels. But then to hear you talking about having something so personal, but almost feeling so free about it, must have been revelationary. It really was revelationary. It was interesting because after that first season went live, or whatever the terminology is, I had some really lovely listener feedback. And I had a friend of mine from university who I hadn't seen for years get back in touch with me. And she sent me a message on Facebook and said, it's extremely brave what you've done. Because the first season, 
I shared my own experience in interviews, but also the final interview was me being interviewed by Dolly Alderton. And I was very open about my own failures. And it was interesting to me that she used the word brave because I've never considered myself brave. It seems to me to be quite a natural way to be, but I realise that not everyone feels the same. And that, again, takes me back to sort of knowing myself, something that I have always taken for granted and has always come naturally. It turns out is actually a gift in some ways and it helps other people. And that's been a really lovely thing as well. It's like, oh, I haven't had to try to do this, but just tapping into that and being honest about who I am has helped me achieve something that I've always wanted to achieve because I'm sure you're the same Alice like everything I do podcasting writing books is all about connecting with as many people as I can so then with that in mind and just thinking about the type of career that you have etc there's obviously an overlap between your professional and your personal life you talk very openly about your personal life and in a way and I don't want to be presumptuous by saying this but I mean you've said it anyway that you know the failures that you deem to be failures in your personal life were a starting point for you thinking along those lines. How has the experience of having the podcast, knowing yourself and feeling really fulfilled in your professional life impacted on your personal life? That is such a great question. Basically Uh, just a really nosy question. No, it's a brilliant question. I'm all about nosiness. And I don't think it's nosy, I think it's curious. The short answer is massively. Because... For a long time, and I think that this is the case for a lot of women, in my 20s, as I said, I was an inveterate people pleaser and I was living my life trying to live up to this mythical goal that I had in my head of being rewarded for being a good girl. And that was apparent in my professional life. I would be the one who would say yes to every single assignment that no one else wanted in the belief that eventually I might be rewarded with, dare I say it, a pay rise or a promotion. Of course not, or a staff job. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And in my personal life, it manifested itself in a series of long-term relationships where I was just constantly trying to please my other half rather than checking in and working out whether I was happy. Were you aware of doing that? No, No, not at the time. And I think a large part of it was the social conditioning I mentioned earlier, which was, I think I should get married by this date and I imagine I'm going to have children. So I need to have stuff in place for that. And that's sort of how I approached every relationship. I was quite serious minded about it. And then I did eventually get married at sort of the right time. I failed to have children and my marriage imploded. And that was the point where I had to really look at myself because all of these things I had thought would be mapped out in my 30s actually weren't. And lately, it's hugely impacted my personal life because... I had a period of time being single and doing online dating, which you can only fully appreciate the horror of if you do it yourself. It's horrifying and it's also brilliant. So it's like the same thing. Is there a book in there? Probably. There is probably an entire book because nothing is ever wholly good or wholly bad in life. And I learned a lot of myself from those kind of micro rejections in dating, but it was tough to go through at the time, but it was necessary. The podcast and the book came out of that time in my life where after my divorce, I got into another long-term relationship that ended brutally. He ended it in October, 2017. And I was devastated. And again, I was forced to like confront my ugliest self. I started having really honest conversations with friends about failure and what we can learn from it. That was the genesis of the podcast and the book, which have given me such a sense of calm 
Interestingly, I think because I've managed to write about a lot of experiences that were traumatic to go through at the time, but also because I have such a strong good sense of self. And I'm with someone now who is so able to let me be exactly who and how I am and says that to me and has said to me, even if you never do anything again, I still think you're amazing. Which for someone like me, who was constantly ticking boxes. It's, I just mentioned. Elizabeth told me about her hot acupuncturist <laughs> who works next to my office. He um, is, he is equal to my boyfriend. Okay. One of the most handsome men you will ever meet. Okay. Shout out to Ross Barr. He's in the book actually. <laughs> oh but I'm with someone now and it's amazing that he says that, particularly for someone like me, who a lot of her life checks lots of boxes and was conditioned to meet a lot of goals. And actually what my other half is saying, which is necessary for me to hear and which I now believe, is that I am me apart from anything that I ever do. Apart from any success that I ever have externally, I'm still myself and that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. How do we uncondition girls and women? I mean, part mm. of the podcast that I do and I think you do too is to help unpick that conditioning. Do you feel like that's one of your aims and... How do you do it? Yes, I suppose it is one of my aims and it's such a huge thing to answer how we do it. But I do think it's very important that women are allowed to be and they're allowed to be varied and multifarious and have complex and sometimes contradictory aspects to their personality. And as a novelist... Always, always. <laughs> As a novelist, I was so often asked at literary festivals and it was always women who asked the question, you know, why do you write such unlikable characters? And it was so fascinating to me because I don't think I do write unlikable yeah. characters. I think, I hope I write ones that are convincing and real. And to me, there is no straightforward good girl. And there's that amazing passage in Gone Girl, isn't there, Gillian Flynn, where she talks about trying to be the cool girl. And I just think teaching young girls that you are allowed to be a multiplicity of things and that you're not failing when you're having a bad mood and you're not being unpleasant and you're not being unlikable when you're having a bad mood. It's just that <laughs> when you choose to be in a bad mood, it has an impact on other people. And therefore you might want to think about this, like, but not making the girl in question feel that she is a bad person for feeling her feelings. I'm aware when I talk like this, that I do believe in exams. Like I do believe in aspiration and I do think it's important to work hard and to do the best that you can. I just think that the flip side of that has to be if you have worked as hard as you can and you have done your best and for some reason something has failed, that doesn't make you a bad person and don't be relentlessly negative about yourself because I think so many women have that very harsh internal critic. Totally. Yeah. We hold on to actually something that we always encourage our students to do around confidence and trying to change that cycle of doom that cycle of negativity inside your head is to try and grasp all the positivity that's around us because actually we just instinctively hold on to the negative so one comment that somebody made but yeah. actually amongst myriad other lovely things that are happening and compliments that people are paying you that we don't hold on to so actually I've got on my email something called a brag file where I literally just file away anything nice that anyone emails me and then we get our students to do the same and then to actually just spend 10 minutes rereading it I think I have to do that yeah, I think it's, it's such a good thing to do and it might be that was a lovely dinner party or I love your earrings or it might be your podcast made me rethink my entire career whatever it is big or small but actually just 
practicing the art of holding on to the positives and not just grasping onto all of the yeah. negatives that swirl about. I think that's so wise. And I do think I'm as guilty as the next person. I've got better at it, but there was a review of how to fail in a national broadsheet. <laughs> and I read it and I was like, I felt that it was really negative and like sniffy. Every single person who got in touch with me that day, and there were quite a few, was like, what a rave review, how incredible. And I had focused on the one line that was less than complimentary. And what I've now realised, because I've read a lot of reviews now, and I've read a lot of online comments over things that I've written, and I've stopped my... the comments? Not anymore. Do you read below the line? Not anymore, because I just realised it wasn't good for my mental health. It's never going to help. Exactly, because you're always looking for the bad thing. You're always looking for the scab to pick. Mm. And what I've realised is now, when I can't help but I've just come across a comment on Instagram or something, it affects me, a negative comment. But I realised that it will go. Like, it's a time thing. I realised that if I just give it a few hours and I wake up the next day, it will feel better. And I think that that's a really important thing to remember as well. And it's true of so much stuff. It's true of heartbreak. Yeah, totally. One of my great friends says to me, and she was talking about taking her two children, very young children, on a flight to LA at the time, but she did say, everything is just a moment in time. Like, however shit it's going to be, it's going to end. Exactly. And once it ends, it's done. And I do defer to that quite a lot, because you're right. I'm not even going to ask you the question, which is, would you forego all of the failures? Because clearly they are part of who you are today. And I think, you know, accepting that life is shit can be shit and life can be brilliant and not berating yourself for the bad stuff and trying to enjoy the good stuff probably is the essence of what you do. Definitely. But also just a simple kind of rule of thumb. Well, I think the failure and the bad stuff leads in and is inextricably linked to the good stuff and the success. Mm. And you can't have one without the other. And as Truman Capote said, failure is the condiment that gives success its flavour. Life is texture. I'm a big believer in that. And so the bad points and the low points and the sadnesses also make you appreciate the high points and the happinesses. And so I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change any of it. I don't regret anything other than having maybe unwittingly hurt people. But one of the things that I wish is that I had learned lessons more quickly (laughs) in my personal life. And yes, I think the universe had to give me a lot of nudges Mm -hmm. to make me realise. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating to me because I'm like, oh, of course, I suddenly see this stuff. It's like those old 3D pixelated posters Mm -hmm. that, I mean, I... Yes, those things where you exactly suddenly (laughs) see the kind of skyscrapers and it flicks and you're like, oh, how could I ever have not seen that? I think you can rush those things. An extra note to add in to this episode of The Success Revolution, and that is around the Step Up School, which if you are a regular listener or you are a keen follower of the Step Up Club's Instagram feed or get the newsletter, you will know that booking is now open for the next round of Step Up School, which is our unique masterclass three-day coaching program that will get you working smarter, achieving your goals, it will help you build your confidence it will knit you within a brand new female network it really is a game changer our grads email constantly to tell us about their career wins new businesses promotions angel investment returns to work and so much more this really is a unique opportunity to get some perspective on your career and learn the skills so that you can really fulfill your potential 
I asked Elizabeth to send me a few successes that she deems important in her life. And I love this one so much. I'm going to go straight in. So I'm going to quote her. Seeing tube posters go up in April 2018 for my last novel, The Party. This was just one of the greatest things ever! Exclamation mark. <laughs> the Party is my fourth novel and it felt like the previous ones had never really been noticed by anyone. Having tube posters for one of my books has been a dream of mine for years. And it was a really wonderful thing to happen, especially as it came off the back of a difficult patch in my life. I just want to know how many selfies you took in front of these posters and how it actually felt <laughs> and uh, just talk me through it. Oh God, it felt so amazing. And how many selfies did I take? It was actually quite hard. I took a few. they were so big. But they were so big, exactly. So my dear friend, Francesca Siegel, who is... I know Francesca. I went to Do you know her? Are you kidding? Oh, she's wonderful. Yeah. You should have her on this. She's I got know, an amazing memoir. Francesca was generous enough to say to me, she's like, darling, do you think we should go and like have an expedition one day and just find lots of your tube posters and take photos by them? And I am so glad she offered. And she said to me, it's really important to celebrate these moments. And she said that she'd once read an interview with Martin Amis, where Martin Amis had once seen a woman on a bus reading his book and he was at the height of his fame and he was going to go and say, that's my book. And then he stopped himself. He's like, no, that's embarrassing and I'm not going to do that and I'll probably see someone again. And he's never seen anyone again. So capture the moment. Capture the moment. So we went and she took an amazing photo of me in front of, there's like this massive long one on Camden Town platform. It was quite a busy day and various New Zealand tourists were sort of baffled as to what we were doing. But I'm so glad she did that. So I've got that and I've also got my publisher very sweetly printed out a sort of mini version that I framed just above my bed. The ultimate act of narcissism. (laughs) It felt incredible. And I remember seeing the first one because I'd been told that they were going up that weekend, but actually they went up slightly earlier. And I had been out on the Wednesday night to celebrate the publication of the paperback because it had been chosen as a Richard and Judy summer read. So there was something to celebrate. And it was the most fun night. I had just met the man who would then become my boyfriend. We'd just been on our second date. So I was on a high from that. Yeah. Yeah. Drank loads of champagne, ate pizza at home slice, went on drinking with my friend Charmaine and then next morning woke up with a righteous hangover. I was hungover, but I was okay. I was totally fine with it and I was still happy. Riding the crest of this wave and I got a train to Cambridge because I had booked some time off to do some writing and I got off the tube at King's Cross and I walked slap bang into a tube poster that I did not know was going to be there. And what did you do? It was like seeing a, a long lost friend. I was like, oh my God, it's, it's, it's such a long lost friend from your dreams as a child. Yes. It was amazing. Utterly amazing. And I took a photo of it and I sent it to the man who I was then dating. Yeah. And he was like, I'm so proud of you. And I was like, oh, you're so lovely. And it was how, incredible. How has ticking that box? Because I think it's all very well to talk about success in kind of slightly abstract terms and not Mm. breaking it down into ways that it doesn't restrict us. But I also think that it's right to celebrate successes that are just successes, that are things that you've always wanted to do. So how did that moment or that kind of series of events and culminating in the poster, et cetera, have you been able to leverage onto that or hold onto it, put it in your kind of backpack of life? Yeah, I have. And I think you're absolutely right that these moments are transient and ephemeral. And I was very grateful in a sense that my previous novels, as much as I am proud of them, had never done what I 
dreamt for them. So I knew how special it was that this was happening to me. Is that Can I just ask a technical question? Yeah. Why did that get the publicity? Was it that the editor, oh, because you moved publisher? I moved publisher, right. yeah. So my beloved editor, who has edited every single one of my books, including How to Fail, she does fiction and nonfiction, moved from Bloomsbury, where I was, to Fourth Estate okay. and took me with her. That was complicated because I was in the middle of a two book deal with Bloomsbury. So I paid back the money and they let me go. And I moved with Helen to Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate are the Carlsberg of book publishers. They have been incredible. And they just got me and got the book. Had you written the book? No, I hadn't written the book. I started writing it when Helen was at Fourth Estate. So I was writing it for her, but she then had to sell it in-house. And I'd also in that time got a new agent and my new agent is fantastic and still my agent. She's very commercially minded and she's also very no bullshit. So she said, your characterization is great, but you really need to work on your plot. And that was my challenge. Really? Because I thought the plot was page turn. I thought the plot was almost... Well, it is now in the party because I worked on it because I've always been slightly scared of plot, but I treated plot as a sort of extra character Mm. with the party and it has a thriller structure. Yeah, totally. And so those three things, I think, coincided and just hit a moment. Yeah. And also there's a whole element of serendipity and luck when you publish a book. You just, people have no clue why certain books take off and others don't. I also love the cover and actually, interestingly, that was the first time in my life that I had felt confident enough in myself to reject the first cover that they gave to me. Because I was like, no, actually, I do know my book and that cover doesn't represent what I think of it. The first cover was a beautiful cover, just not for my book. It was very painterly and it had sort of art deco font. It was very mannered and it had like a couple dressed in sort of I mean, the woman had awful shoes. I just I mean, imagine. It was like, I just walked over them. Get rid of and they were walking down a sort of spiral staircase. But it just didn't feel dangerous. And I wanted like danger and glamour. Yeah. So I can't remember the original question. I've just gone off on a t- um, complete tangent. I think the original... Oh, did I put it in my backpack? Yeah, did you put it in your backpack? I did. I did. Did you defer to your backpack? Like, did you go back to it? And say- yes. And actually, recently, when How to Fail the Book became a bestseller. I've never had a Sunday Times bestseller before. Was it number five? Am I right? Yes. No, you're not. You're correct. I didn't want to undersell. No, you're very sweet. Number five. And then I've just had two incredible weeks where the book became a bestseller. I got a million downloads and I was nominated for two British podcast awards. Sorry. But no, I don't want to be a twat about it. (laughs) And that all happened very quickly. And I was feeling really overwhelmed by it. I've actually got a question off the back of the tube posters, but actually much more personal now about has that been all overwhelming? It has been really overwhelming in a good way. And I think I'm used to feeling overwhelmed in a bad way. Mm -hmm. And I really struggled to work out what I was feeling. I was like, I'm just feeling this weird thing, but I'm happy about it. And I think because it's a memoir, it has also felt very exposing. And I think when women choose to tell their stories, they always are made to feel shame about it. So I jostled with that. And then there was the fact that I was being interviewed a lot. So I was packaging up difficult and messy patches of my life Mm. for interview answers to make nice anecdotes. And I had to check in with myself and be like, am I being honest to my experience and I realized that I was it was just that was the nature of an interview is that you can't sort of explain everything to its infinite detail so all of those things were interesting and they did feel overwhelming and I'm very glad that I am in therapy because I've had like a weekly therapy session that exactly that has helped me through it but I knew that I wanted to do something permanent that would always remind me of this achievement Mm -hmm. 
And so I got a tattoo. Nice. <laughs> I think I saw it. What yes. It? It's, I'm going to show it to you now. Only Connect, it says, Only which connect. is just... Very cool. It's under Elizabeth's very cool watch. Yes. And it's this... subtle. Go on, t- talk to me about the tattoo. I've never got been brave enough. <sighs> I've got three now, but they're very subtle. And, um... Why Only Connect? So Only Connect is E.M. Forster's phrase that he opens Howard's End with. And Margaret Schlegel in Howard's End actually has this beautiful passage talking about it. E.M. Forster's talking about connecting your inner selves, so the passion and the prose, the inner monk with the inner beast. So it's that sort of sense that there are these two sides to yourself that can connect. I also like to see it as my mantra for life, really, which is only connecting with other people. Even if I get sort of negative comments or whatever, I am connecting on some level with that person. And that's what I have to remind myself. That's why I do what I do. And that's why it's important to keep doing it. Because in connecting with each other, we're making each other feel less alone. And that is what makes us human. And that's a beautiful thing. So that's why I got it done. But also, it's beautiful script. And I researched it on Instagram. And I found this tattoo guy called Miles Langford, who is now my favorite tattooist. And he has beautiful writing. And he's made it very delicate. He does single line tattooing. And I can disguise it under my watch strap should I want to. Yeah. The the great thing about tattoos, I have, as I said, three, and they all mark very important and profound moments in my life. And before you get a tattoo for the first time, you feel incredibly, and rightfully so, like incredibly anxious, like, oh my God, I'm doing this thing forever. And then you get one, you're like, this was the most liberating thing because you're kind of claiming your own body. And the first tattoo I got actually was after my unsuccessful IVF cycles. And it was a reminder that life keeps on going. And it was also me claiming back my own body. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I think is that, yes, it's permanent, but also life isn't permanent. Like life is short and you should do what you want with it. And I find them really liberating and kind of beautiful things. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to become a... You're not going to get sleeves. No, I'm not going to get sleeves. I'm not going to I think I'm done now. I think three is enough. Who knows? I know. Never say never. Well, what is the future then? So where are you? You're on top of a mountain Mm. of achievements and at a time where things are going well, which must be exciting. Aside from feeling slightly overwhelmed, when you have moments of clarity, what are you thinking? Like, where am I going? What am I going to do with this? How am I going to channel this? So it's exciting being at the top of a mountain, but it's also, and I feel like many women would relate to this, I also feel a degree of fear because I'm sort of bracing myself for... Something. Yes. And I think a lot of us struggle with just relaxing into good times. Yeah, you just feel so anxious. So I've been feeling a bit of that, but I'm also consciously battling against it because I do think, again, that's all about social conditioning and like a sense of shame, a women's shame, like you're not allowed to have this or to enjoy it. And in my moments of clarity, I used to be someone with a a distinct sort of five-year plan. Mm -hmm. And what I've realised over the course of my life is that those plans never really work out. And actually, for me it works much better if I allow myself a moment of peace amidst the madness to allow my instinct to make itself felt. And that's how I'll be guided. So that's my esoteric answer. My practical answer is I 
had started a novel before How to Fail came about. Mm -hmm. I'd written 50,000 words of it. And I'm deciding now whether I want to return to it or whether I want to write more nonfiction. And while I'm deciding that, I'm doing a number of live shows around How to Fail, which I'm really excited about, which have been amazing. I did one on publication day on the 4th of April at the Rio Cinema in Dalston with Shuti Gatwa, who plays Eric in Sex Education. And it was such an incredible evening and it was so uplifting and inspiring. Just the audience were just amazing, phenomenal women. Women, all of whom came to like share their own stories and it was just really special so I'm doing those and I'm continuing the podcast for at least three more seasons because I've got okay. sponsorship in place for that so do you have all your guests in place not all of them but a few because I only have eight episodes per season okay, so, it's not so I've got the next one and a half set up right. yeah yeah so it's funny while you were talking I was feeling slightly bad about asking you that question because I felt like don't no 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 <laughs> not bad to, to force you into an answer but mm. actually what I was exactly doing was conditioning you to think well you're doing really well so you bloody well be planning <laughs> for the next? future which is I love my dad and he's one of my role models but it's absolutely thing my dad would do and it's the one thing that really I find slightly sometimes a bit annoying so in contrast to that do you just sometimes sit around doing nothing all day not all day, but parts I do... Parts of your day. Parts of my day, definitely. Quite, well, I mean, you're obviously freelance or not. Yes. But, you know, you work for yourself. So are you quite good at just thinking, well, actually, I'm not going to work nine to five today and I'm having a great time. I'm actually just going to go up Chinese for lunch and... I'm better at it. you're not, you should be. Yes, well, thank you. I'm better at it than lots of people I know because I've had to learn. I thought I would take so easily to the freelance mm. life but actually, I felt an enormous amount of guilt it's when really I was... It's really stressful managing that. And then what I realised was, because what I do is creative, I actually need those fallow mm -hmm. patches. So those days when I'm slightly stressed because I don't have anything in the diary and like, well, how am I going to make my rent this month? Actually, they're necessary to just kind of breathe and relax. And something always comes up. And if something doesn't come up, I have confidence in myself that I can generate the work that I need. So I've got better at that. What I'm very good at is weekends. I'm okay. extremely protective of my weekends. And generally... I try and make them journalism and podcast free zones. Not as in, I'll read other people's yeah, journalism, yeah, yeah. but just in terms of my work, I will spend time writing a bit of my book at the weekend, but I find that quite calming a lot of the time. Yes, I keep those two days very, very free. And I have no problem at all with lying on my sofa watching The Real Housewives. I do a lot of that. Good to know. And I am completely fine with my life choices. And I think it's necessary. I do realise that about myself, that I work very hard and I'm pretty busy a lot of the time and I'm running around all the time and then I get overwhelmed and then I get ill <laughs> and then I need to rest. And every time I rest, I feel like, God, this is the gradual slide into oblivion and I get into a really negative headspace. And then I start to feel better again because I've rested. Now, my challenge as an adult has been making those cycles less frequent, mm -hmm. but I'm not there yet. But acupuncture helps. Okay. So how else do you rest? I sleep. I love sleep. I think sleep is extremely important mm -hmm. and it's easier for me to do than many people listening because I don't have children. And I just think it's super important. The weekend rule, I do have acupuncture, which I just find chills me out a lot. And I like holidays. And I also, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Again, there should be no shame attached to that. You sort of need that. I 
tend to go to LA to refuel and that's a place really? that's, that doesn't seem like somewhere you would necessarily go and refuel. I know but it's a very special place to me after my marriage imploded I went there for three months and I was on staff at the observer at the time okay. and I went there because my cousin who is more like a sister to me lives there I'd always wanted to live in America and I thought I'd give LA a shot and my cousin lives in the east of the city which is very green and walkable and beautiful and chilled and I had the most magical time there and I found the sunshine and the way of life and the people I met were all a really important part of my healing Mm -hmm. to use a very Californian Mm -hmm. word and it's sort of my spirit home where I go back when I want to recharge recharge yeah and actually a lot of how to fail was written there Oh, was it? In fact, practically all of it, yeah. So let's talk about how to fail, because I'm conscious that we're just chatting and I could sit here for ages. But I'm so rabbiting on. No, I love it. <laughs> but I want to talk about how to fail. I mean, we've obviously touched on it. You talked about it being a passion project. Were you conscious of that from the outset? And why podcasting? Mm-hmm. And where is it taking you? You said that you might be moving more into nonfiction. What is mm-hmm. that nonfiction? And how has it kind of sparked things inside you? It sparked so much and it's just been so funny in a way that something about failure has become the most successful thing I've ever done and something that I did not plan. So the reason it came about was because, as I mentioned, I got dumped in October 2017 and I went to LA for a month to recharge. (laughs) And also I was ghostwriting a memoir. I was writing Gina Miller's memoir. So she's this incredibly strong, inspirational woman. And it was really interesting to me that I was assuming the voice of this strong, politically engaged woman at a time when I was feeling extremely vulnerable myself. And Gina has been through a lot in her life. And she said to me, I've learned a lot from failure. And at the time that I was both writing that memoir in LA, having conversations with my female friends about heartbreak, I was listening to a lot of podcasts because listening to pop music made me feel too sad. Mm -hmm. And one of the podcasts I listened to was Esther Perel's Where Shall We Begin, which is an incredible podcast and obviously all about honest conversations between people who feel that their relationship is failing. That's interesting you listen to that. Yeah. Well, because it helped me realize what might have been going on Mm -hmm. both in my ex's head, because it was such a ball out of the blue. He hadn't communicated with me what was happening. And it also helped me realize what part I had to play mm-hmm. in that. And all of those things... So like the cheapest therapy. Yes, exactly. Right. All of those things coalesced and I started to have the idea for a podcast because I think that a podcast is a very intimate environment mm-hmm. that opens people up to having honest conversations. And that was really the idea. And I let it gestate for a bit. It's quite difficult to know when things exactly start, but I do remember that the final shove that I needed to do it came in February 2018 when a friend of mine had run into my ex at a party and said he was with another woman. And I was so furious. I was so furious because, probably unfairly, but I was like, this has had a massive impact on my life. And he had bowled up to my friend without a care in the world, apparently according to her. And it was interesting to me that I was angry rather than anything else. That was the fuel that I needed. I I suddenly put together a sponsorship document the next day. I love that those type of things happen. But do you think in a way it was a bit of a fuck you to him? Do something like I'm just going to do something. Yes. And prove myself. It was yourself. Exactly. It was more like proving myself to myself. I was like, okay, I'm going to take this shitty thing that has happened and that has made me feel so sad and then so angry and I am going to use it as fuel Mm. and I'm really 
proud of that. Yeah. I have no animosity towards my ex whatsoever. He is a great person and I'm really glad I'm not with him. <laughs> but I had to go through all of those cycles to get to that place. And how to fail was definitely part of that. Definitely. It's so satisfying to be able to sit and listen to you have not closure, but be able to place things in the order that they came. And then obviously for everyone listening and for myself, and it's remembering that when there is shit, because we all have shit times, that it's going to evolve into something else at some point. And it's being conscious of those evolutions and conscious of when things are shit and saying, actually, I've got to allow myself to be. And you can harness it. The other thing that I was doing loads at that time was I was going to loads of spin classes because I was like, First of all, because weekends are really tricky when you're single and you're my age and everyone else seems to be happily married and having like picturesque picnics on Hampstead Heath. And so I would find that I would have like long days and I would go to spin class and lose myself in that and exercise the fuck out of my rage. And it was really helpful because I was getting out of my head for those times Mm -hmm. and it was actually something that was good for me and that's something that I would say to anyone listening if you're going through something really hard right now you can use it as fuel Mm. it can end up taking you somewhere really amazing and that was certainly my experience that's my quote for the podcast by the way okay thanks for dropping it in there right at the end (laughs) the only last thing that I want to talk about is women because you don't only interview women and you do have a female stance to your writing I would say I don't mean your voice but I mean uh, your subjects but you've talked a lot about connecting with women your female friendships and being a woman where is your womanhood and your female friends and your female relationships how are they part of your success and who you are I wish you could see how broadly I'm smiling because they are everything. My relationship with my female friends is the most long lasting and the most successful relationship of my life. And so much of our popular culture is devoted to romantic relationships and not, although it's changing now, when I was growing up, there was hardly any like female buddy movies. And I have just fallen more and more in love with my female friends as I've got older. I could not have got through the last decade in the shape that I have were it not for my best female friends. Specifically, my best friend, Emma, who is also a psychotherapist, which is the most incredible combination for a best friend. She was the one who said to me, when my marriage started imploding, I felt a great deal of shame and failure around it. And I wasn't really honest to myself, let alone to anyone else. I sort of kept it all under wraps. And I remember the first time that I spoke to Emma about it over the phone, and she said, I prefer you more when you're real that was such a revelation to me that she sort of already knew me and she already knew the imperfect version of me the one that I've been trying so hard to hide and she loved me more for it and that's what my female friends give me they just are so generous and accepting and I get an enormous amount of support and solidarity from them and it's a wonderful thing because I know that whatever else happens hopefully I will have them. (laughs) Yeah, no, I wholeheartedly agree. The only reason I really said it was because I am so of that camp too. I mean, I am married and I do love my husband very, very dearly, but I would say in a way, my female friendships, well, they're as important. They're more long lasting. They have more depth to them probably. They're my default. Yeah. And I love it. My paternal grandmother was my idol when I was growing Mm. up. She was this very glamorous Jewish lady who could roll out dinner for 20 people and look fabulous and was just amazing to have as a grandmother. And from her, I've learned the importance of female relationships. And I think it really feeds into, I mean, I was a fashion journalist. I think 
you know, that was obviously around women. And then I evolved into writing about women. And now I help hopefully embolden women in their careers. And I think there is something so nourishing about being able to bring women together and see the brilliance that that does. Completely. And that's why I love what you do. I really do. And I think that for so long, women have been encouraged to compete against each other, whether it be for jobs or for mates or, and actually the greatest power comes from the greatest togetherness and a rising tide raises all boats. Like I really, I'm a big proponent of that. And also it's just so exhausting being jealous and envious of people all the time. You might as well just be happy for them because your path is your path and what someone else does won't really affect that. You can just concentrate on your own thing whilst also being rooted in, as you say, this just like female love. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, it's been an absolute joy. I could sit here for much longer and chat, but I'm conscious that probably people don't have hours to listen to the (laughs) podcast and they've got work to get to. But thank you, Elizabeth. It's been brilliant and good luck with everything in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing. If you enjoyed the podcast and it sparked some thoughts about your success, please don't forget to leave a review and a rating for The Success Revolution wherever you are listening. All of the information from today's episode can be found at stepupclub.co forward slash podcast. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram and sign up to the newsletter so that I can help you achieve your career dreams. See you next week, same time, same place.